Hey, welcome to another episode of I Just Want This Done. I'm Rafe Palmer and with me as always is Rahul Iyer. And we're here to tell you about divorce, celebrity divorces, uh, relationships, dating apps, business, and anything else that interests us. Because if it interests us, pretty sure it interests you. And uh, like, share, subscribe, please, for more. And uh, we're going to keep these coming every week. So thank you. And up first, we, what do we got? We've got we're talking about, uh, we're going back to the well with Britney Spears. That's right. Uh, Sorry, Rafe. So good. More on the Britney story we talked about briefly last week. We said they were, they were in the split, her and Sam Asgari. So I think, as they say, uh, the plot thickens here. It's uh, um, more has come out. As suspected, Britney has a, as it reports anyway, I should say, Britney has this quote-unquote ironclad prenup. Uh, she has this uh, famous $60 million book deal that she signed. Uh, the Woman Inside Me, I think, is okay. the name of the book. So, uh, and I'm sorry if I got that wrong. I believe that's what it's called, though. And so she got, uh, through Simon Schuster, I think she had a nice, uh, very lucrative book deal. And um, they say that's completely uh, protected. And obviously all her premarital earnings as well. And really, they've been only married for about a year and a half. So the rub comes in because there's sort of conflicting reports. Uh, you hear some people from his camp saying he might be challenging the prenup. He might, you know, in exchange for keeping quiet, uh, there is a very strong confidentiality clause, all her actions, things that happened during the marriage. Everything's supposed to be extremely confidential, according to this. But he's saying he may spill the beans in, uh, if she doesn't oh. want him to. He's got to give her a little bit of a payout or a little bit more than what the prenup says. So her camp denies that this is happening, that they both intend to follow the prenup. You know, we never know right. what these things are. Everyone's just sort of, it's all just media bashing. We don't want to spread rumors, but that's just kind of what's been floating around. So this is something, one. this one we have to follow. We have to see where this is going because, again, going back to the whole Costner prenup thing, this is sort of, uh, it's not your mundane, hey, they have a prenup, they got divorced. You know, this kind of where some of, where the, some of the juicy stuff is, like is someone contesting a prenup? How's right. that going to look? Uh, in exchange for not contesting, is she giving up something more than she would have otherwise? She's already paying $10,000 a month for him to stay okay. in an apartment. So she's paying for his like very, very fancy apartment oh. in LA. So, I mean, uh, a month. So good stuff. So the thing is, prenups work, as we're going to see in Costner. Mark my words, we'll see it work. And they're going to work in this case, ultimately. People can challenge them, but they're really successful. We've done research in Illinois. There are very few successful challenges to prenups. We've done the homework. I was, again, I was in a seminar several years ago in Florida with family law attorneys from all over the country, and they were complaining in this room. These are top divorce lawyers from all over the country complaining that prenups are hard to overturn. And they were saying that the law should be changed to judge prenups at the time the divorce happens, that the fairness should be judged then not at the time the prenup is signed, which really, there's really no such thing as determining the fairness at the time the prenup is signed. It's kind of, that's equity, it being equitable is not an issue. It can be very inequitable as, you know, so we just want to tell the audience at the time of signing, you know, you're, as long as there's no undue duress and there's full disclosure, pretty much the sky's the limit. Well, lawyers have been complaining and you see this in, in the uh, divorce lawyer world from time to time, this bubbles back to the surface, people pushing to change the prenup statute to make it the law so that people can 
you have revisionist history and use the, the time of the divorce, the standard of how things look now to judge the prenup. And basically that would mean lots of prenups could be invalidated if you're judging it from the standard of 20 years later or whatever, when the, when the facts are very different, what have you, but, uh, they work and that's the bottom line. And there's a reason for that. People should stand by their contracts and, and pay the price when they breach. I, absolutely. And I'm a big like prenup guy. So I, 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 you know, you don't want what's, I, I always question, what's the point of having a prenup if you're going to decide whether it's good or not. So you're going to spend all this money to possibly have nothing, uh, you know, they might as well get, not get a prenup at right. that point. And there are other ways we can make sure assets are protected without a prenup too. Right. So we can well, certainly do that. So why waste all this time and energy on a prenup and cross your if fingers? If they weren't enforceable, people would just not sign. I'm, I'm sorry. What I'm, I'm trying to say is if they weren't enforceable, people would just not get married and not deal with the problem. Is there more here with the prenup um, and, and Britney Spears? No, I mean, I think that ultimately that's what it comes down to is, uh, is we'll just have to monitor this because this seems like one that's ripe for some contention, especially with Britney Spears's previous sort of history with her father and, and all those legal issues that, that surround her conservatorship and, and how that is now sort of transitioning to sort of the divorce world. So this will be an interesting one to see because it doesn't seem clean cut, at least from what we are hearing now. So we'll keep an eye on this sure. one for everybody. Interesting. That, that'll be interesting to see how this pans out, especially with the conservatorship issue tied into it. Um, this and Costner are two ones that we're keeping. An yeah, eye on. Um, next is a interesting article I came across, and that is Forbes came up with an article recently where they published, a, they did a survey of a thousand people and came up with what they say are like the leading causes of divorce among this 1,000 people. And some other takeaways they got from the survey, and this is, we'll have the link to the, all these articles in the show notes, but the uh, survey said um, the majority of divorces are initiated by one party. Well, that's, that's not a surprise. I mean, there's really very few joint divorce filings. So I, some of these things are not surprises to divorce lawyers. I think they, they might look interesting to reporters, but then they say more, most divorces happen between year three and year seven of marriage, which ties into something Rahul's going to talk about a little later. 4% of divorced of couples divorced after 10 years. Most divorced people, 92% know others who have been divorced, um, which ties into something else that I've been researching for my book. And that is there's all this evidence that the more people you know who are divorced, the more likely you are to get divorced, which isn't in this survey, but it's in my book that I'm working on now. It's not good for us divorce lawyers, but we know thousands yeah. of them. Well, yeah, true. 63% <laughs> um, of divorcees believe, which I guess they're still using that term. So I guess that means, you know, women who've been divorced believe a better understanding of the commitments of marriage. Now, actually, I don't know if they're using that in a gender neutral way. That used to mean female. I think it's so gender neutral. That's, it's so that's the gender neutral term, yeah. divorcees, meaning people who are divorced. Okay, well, there it is. I feel like it ages somebody, right? You yeah. Know, it feels like it. Yeah. So they say 63% of, I guess, people who have been divorced believe a better understanding of the commitments of marriage could have helped them to avoid divorce. That corresponds with stuff I've seen in my TikTok comments of all things where people say, if I was warned, I would lose half my stuff and pay alimony. I never would have gotten married. Now, I'm skeptical, but interesting. 
Lack of compatibility is the top reason for new couples to divorce. I'm guessing that means first marriages with 59% of couples who divorced in their first year citing this cause. Well, yeah, I guess <laughs> you'll find out pretty quick if you're not compatible, I guess. And then there's some other interesting numbers here. They said um, about 700,000 divorces occurred in 2021. Data tend to lag on this stuff. Like in Illinois, it's very hard to find anything in the last few years published. The state is very slow to publish divorce statistics. And uh, I don't know where they got this information, but they said in 2021, almost 700,000. Approximately half of all first marriages end in divorce, kind of the statistic everybody knows. With subsequent marriages failing at higher rates, meaning your second, third marriage tend to be higher rates of divorce. When a couple divorces, you must state grounds in court. This is the reason for ending the marriage and dictates the type of divorce being filed. Okay. One thing I wanted to talk about with that is we're not sure what the survey methodology was here. How do they get this information? If they just sent surveys with questions to these 1,000 people, or do they pull court documents? Because like in Illinois, we just have no fault divorce and you can't even cite a reason anymore. Not too long ago, several years ago, you could say there was infidelity, alcoholism and other things, but we, we still, yeah, abuse, right, physical yeah. abuse. And, but you still had irreconcilable differences and proving fault didn't gain you an advantage in, in divorce. Uh, there was no better division of property or any break on alimony or anything in Illinois because we're Chicago divorce lawyers. Um, in other states, there may be some advantage to proving that. And in other states, you still can plead and prove those fault items to go through your divorce. We just don't have that in Illinois. It's been gone for some time. So if the survey was based on filings, the results are going to be skewed because people a lot of people list irreconcilable differences when a real reason might have been an affair or any combination of other things, and they're just not putting it in the pleading. They're not putting it in the court document. So we're not really sure, but one thing to know, if you see quotes taken from a divorce petition in the press or the press repeats what they hear and they say, irreconcilable differences were cited as the reason. Well, that's a host of issues underlying that. There might have been abuse. There might have been adultery. There might have been alcoholism or whatever. They're just not talking about it. And or they're staying And because yeah. they can't. They either yeah, can't exactly. or they strategically don't want to. So keep that in mind when you see press reports saying irreconcilable differences were the reason for so-and-so's divorce. There's, there's all kinds of reasons. That's just what you know either because legal yeah, it's a legal standard or yeah. they don't want to put it out there. So, um, so I think that's pretty yeah, interesting. It's, and then they talk about, here's a couple of interesting things. And then they have the reasons, common causes for divorce. And at first they talk about the reasons people get married. I guess they did that in the survey. And then they did the reasons people get divorced. And I'll just talk about the top three. Top three factors for getting married, 42% financial security. Interesting. Number two, companionship, 39%. Three, love, 36%. Sorry, love, I guess it's not a romantic deal. It's all about the money, which is number one. Well, that line like metal. they say it's not about the money, it's always about the money. Okay, well, top three. <laughs> number four, I'll just throw in number four. Formal act of making a commitment, 34%. Okay, I get that. And then other ones that you might think of, start a family, legal reasons. I'm not sure, <laughs> 16% for legal reasons. Okay, medical insurance, 25%. Okay, uh, reasons for divorce. Biggest factors, number one at 43%, lack of family support. That's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. 
kind of sounds like blaming somebody else for your problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, my mom and dad, it's, they didn't support us enough. Like, nah, I'm not sure. No. Or I have to do all the chores yeah. around here, right? Well, it, yeah, it depends on what they mean by family, right? Are we talking about we talking right. about the small family? The, the immediate nu- family? Or they, yeah, nuclear? Yeah, the nuclear. Right, yeah. or extended. Infidelity extramarital affairs, number two. Not a shock, but I've got something to say about that. That's 34%. <laughs> lack of compatibility, 31%. Number four, lack of intimacy, 31%, which ties into like kind of all this other stuff, in my opinion. Um, then they have all these other ones that everybody would understand. Financial, too much conflict, blah, blah, blah. Parenting differences. So in our experience, and Rahul can talk to this too, when you've done this for a long time, we become <laughs> anecdotal experts in like, you know, we're kind of surveying this as people do consultations with us for years and years and years. And there are many, many reasons for people getting divorced. And usually it's a combination of factors. The most, our most common divorce types, I would say, are cases where people have been married 10, 15, 20 plus years. You know, we, we don't usually do, in the nature of our business, it's just not as common for us to do shorter term marriages. We, we, of course, do those divorces, but we see a lot of them where they're longer marriages. And We've grown apart is the headline, I would say, over most of them. And you can add these other factors into the mix. There might be an affair, but it's because they grew apart and somebody felt like there weren't, there wasn't intimacy, stuff like that. And maybe they did an online affair with somebody or they freaked out and had an affair with somebody or, uh, and we're, we're setting aside the reasons that, you know, kind of the, um, pathological things. So there is pathological cheating where the person's like a serial cheater and they can't help themselves. We're talking, we're not talking about addictions, psychosis, uh, you know, severe mental disorders. These are things that cause divorces because the other person just can't take it anymore. That, yeah. And, that. and those are understandable. That happens to be a minority. You know, the majority are people just not getting along anymore for whatever reason, any number of reasons. And usually it's a combination. So when you ask what's the leading cause or what is the reason for your divorce, most people will tell you it's more than one. And even the victim of an affair will say that they will admit things weren't good. They, they will tell you it's rare that they say everything was wonderful. And then bam, I get hit between the eyes with this uh, affair. So, and it's, I, and this isn't blaming the victim at all. It doesn't make the an affair right. It's just explaining both people see trouble even in a situation like that. So in my experience, and I can't speak to Rahul's, but he will, affairs, and the, there is a straw that breaks the camel's back, and it might be in a, discovering an affair. It could be any number of other things. Uh, it might be a fight that finally people have had it, or an in-law gets involved too many times. And, and combined with everything else, it's the final thing that breaks the connection. They finally said, I can't take this anymore in conjunction with everything else. So mm-hmm. that's our, that's our experience. So these surveys are kind of goofy because they're asking people to quantify something that's emotional and, and usually is like anything in life. There's a bunch of things that combine for, for a feeling, you know, why do you love somebody? Well, it's a bunch of things. 
typically, not one thing. So similarly, why do you fall out of love? Well, it's going to be a combination of things, typically, not one thing. So it's, it's interesting. So it's thought it was interesting. They have warning signs of marriages at risk. That's in this article too. We'll have it in the show notes for people to check out. But I thought that was cool. And then what was interesting was, and at the same time, right around the same time, I came across an article in one of our favorite sources, Psychology Today. Hey, before you get to that, let me. I just have oh, a please, quick yeah, point want, uh, yeah. What, about, what, that, what you about that previous article? Yeah. So I think it kind of ties into what we were saying, especially with um, with what you had mentioned about how many couples get divorced right after year one. I think it was a, a previous episode. I can't remember which which episode, but I know previously we had discussed how the Catholic Church has them go through a test, right? They, they say, hey, you know, compatibility, or you need to know all these things. And, you know, I sort of thought, I'm like, hey, you know, uh, we don't, without, without worrying about the constitutionality of it, maybe you give people who are applying for a marriage license, you give them a, a little <laughs> questionnaire that says, hey, check, I'll check out these boxes. And then you say, okay, well, guess what? You guys are probably not compatible. Here's your license, you know, buyer beware sort of thing. So um, I think that kind of goes to that because people often jump into it because it's so easy. It's easy to get married. It's hard to get divorced, right? right? So it's not hard to get divorced, but it's more painful. Yeah. So uh, I think that's very important. And as you were kind of uh, mentioning about the whole irreconcilable differences, I did a quick Google search because, you know, we know there's a handful of states. So the states that still have a fault-based reason uh, on the record, so in a pleading, are Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, North and South Carolina, Vermont, and Virginia, and of course, DC. So those are the ones that still offer fault-based grounds. So if you survey people there, you might have something that doesn't say reconcilable differences. So I think that's, I think that's um, important for the survey to distinguish because when people are picking multiple choice reasons, it's either they pick one or they can pick all five because like you said, most often, more often than not, multiple ones that look right to somebody absolutely so this what, what so what's your experience with the cases you've done about the reasons you know i mean do you have a take on that sure yeah um you know it's it's interesting you say that uh, say that i mean say it gave me your uh experience because it's kind of similar but you also see some people who go through the motions for the sake oh, of sure. something there's always a milestone let's wait until our kid graduates from high school when they're gone, then we can sort of go through this. So they also sort of put up with people for a certain period of time if they feel like the end is near or if they feel like it'll be easier. We have a child who's 15. Let's just get to get, get through the next three years so we don't have to fight about custody and all this stuff and we don't want to rock his world or her world. So I think something like that is also a reason for people to sort of stay married until you no longer, you know, have that reason Good point. and they sort of fall apart and they kind of just you know you always hear right we've been living in the same house but we're in separate rooms and we just kind of do our thing so they're like nesting essentially and some, our roommate and it's, some people for yeah. a long time i'm that's a great point yeah. you make some people will do a consultation and say oh yeah i've been in a separate bedroom for four years I said, really you know it's like surprising to me but people will do a lot to stay together for their kids and typically it's the mm -hmm. kids and yeah, and then they'll wait till a break point, whatever it may be. Typically, like right. going away to college is a big one because um, they, mm -hmm. they don't want to. Like yeah, that's point. a huge inflection point for people. That's a good point. Um, so, yeah, the uh, next 
thing that I thought was interesting that ties into this. We're talking about the reasons for marriage. Well, Psychology Today had this interesting article called The Four Types of Marriage and the Risks and Opportunities in Each. And this is written by a gentleman, Thomas Hendricks. And it was, uh, there are these four kinds of marriage they talk about. Um, they say Americans say they marry for love, but the supports for marriage are much more complicated. Okay. Then they say each type has its opportunities and dangers. So there are four kinds this person identifies. And I just haven't thought about it this way. Work-based marriages stress shared productivity. Ritualistic marriages stress identity, order, and duty. Playful marriages emphasize adventure and change. Communal marriages stress shared experience and bonding. And like anything, I guess we have to be careful about putting stuff in boxes with human beings. Just like, like we were talking yeah. about with reasons for divorce, there's probably multivariate combined things in here. Your marriage might be any two or three of these, right, at different times. But it is interesting when I look at the article, the work-based marriage, um, you know, this is the kind of traditional basis for marriage, right, which was like in medieval times, we're going to join families to get the, the land together. Basically, it's a business deal. And uh, in, in other cultures right now, and still in, our, in the United States, people get married for business. And the, the greater families have two children get married for the purposes of knitting together two families. And, um, and that may have a business interest wrapped into it. And that seems strange to sort of, uh, you might say, 21st century Americans who aren't familiar with those cultures. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't that long ago in the United States. That was not unusual to get married to to work on a, to run our agrarian economy took a lot of people and the females and I'm going to shatter their gender based concerns here but the men worked on the fields with few exceptions and the women worked on you know taking care of clothing the household the children and all this stuff and it was a team effort. And making food and keeping everything clean, it was a full-time and, and more job for both people. And you had a lot of children because you needed people to help on the farm. It was super labor-intensive. And the 20th right. century has changed the, the need for all that. It's shift to industrialization and now high technology and the reduction of the need for individual labor. We don't have to farm our own food anymore and go hunt our own food. So it's, But our, our gender roles and our marriage roles have shifted from... Uh, a work-based relationship where the mutual good was, you know, feeding themselves clothing and shelter, bu building shelter together, clothing e themselves, feeding each other, supporting a family and the family then supporting the parents and helping the parents to a situation where people can get married for love. Now, a lot of people can are self-supporting. They don't need the help. And it's, so it, the, the rationale for this has changed dramatically. So, yeah, work-based marriage, they talk about, you know, putting food on the table. Um, then they say uh, a marriage of this sort is an enterprise or career. It's, it's more like a business. Couples sitting on the front porch with drink in hand rightly take pride in their accomplishments. Interesting line. Danger arises when the enterprise falters or shifts course. Kids grow up and move away. Economic difficulties threaten what's been built. So if the core relationship is built on this work thing, if that mission shifts, the marriage may have problems. It's kind of interesting. Ritualistic marriage. 
Um, it, they say for most of us, marriage is a key element of our identity. We understand ourselves to be spouses, constituents of a couple. We get married in a public ceremony. We declare this to the community. Very, you know, interesting. So uh, being a parent complicates matters. We have our extended family. So there's a, in the ritualistic marriage, much is made of these identities and of family members' obligations to one another. These uh, are not general responsibilities, but commitments to a particular family. Each kin group is a microcosm. So um, there are arrangements and rules of these little worlds, uh, man caves, she sheds, bedrooms, kitchens. There's comfort of having a room of one's own. The danger is these routines can stifle or deaden. After all, contemporary societies are change-oriented. Kind of interesting. This is especially true for younger generations. It's one thing to have a private bedroom or favorite chair. It's another thing to feel compelled to be there night after night. At some point, the impulse for stimulation wins out. The inmate, inmate escapes. Now, I'm not so sure where this person is going with this, but maybe the concept is the, the binds that tie are attractive for a while and then and people find comfort in them, but they can also be like suffocating. I suppose this is what the person's saying. Fairly short article, but kind of interesting. Playful marriage. Uh, what if we're a couple that went places and did things like when we were dating? Uh, we get a lot of this from TV movies and social media, people having fun. There's all this video of people on a yacht somewhere or they're in Aruba or whatever. This couple's having a wonderful time. And you're looking, scrolling at this like, I wish this was me. Fun couple. Yeah, while well, riding like the public transportation train, you know, stuffed in like a sardine and you're watching these people in their yeah. yacht. <laughs> Fun couples are racing around, you know, they're doing their vlogging about some cool place they're at. Um, and so this person who wrote the article says, I support some portion of this, but the danger of the playful marriage is the constant search for novelty and pleasure is shallow and self-defeating. New excitements have difficulty surpassing old ones. And that's a good point. So... You know, it's you can't just keep seeking new stuff together. It's it's going at some point. There's going to be an element of mundane in, in everything you do. What you have a new job, eventually most of the most of the job becomes routine. You have a new relationship, eventually a large portion of that person becomes routine. So I I think it's interesting. So the person is cautioning. You know, if this is what your relationship is built on, just fun adventures and sort of no reality. Well, when you're married and like you said, you're on that public transit going to work all the time and the bloom comes off the rose and you're only going on vacation twice a year, maybe or once a year, the merit, the wheels could come off the relationship because it's based on sort of this false fantasy world. And, and then your family can collide with that too. And the larger family intrudes and children and all that stuff. So I think there's more to it than just being married. It's like the realities of building a family and earning a living when you were single, maybe this is your first marriage, you had money, you had time, you could commit to a lot, go on a lot of little trips, you could afford to go out all the time, and you had younger friends who did that. When everybody has kids and minivans and stuff, it's not as much fun anymore, so it's a good point. Communal marriage, mm -hmm. um, the last point it says, uh, in communal marriages, people prize their shared moments, even this means sitting side by side watching TV, lying together in the dark, Communal partners celebrate bonding. Um, then the author does say at the end of the article, I, I should say that most marriages are combinations of these. The strongest ones may emphasize all four themes. I think that's true. I think if you if you combine yep. pieces of these, you're, you have a higher chance of success rather than relying on one leg on the proverbial stool. So that is kind of interesting.
Um, that is what, really what do you think about that? I, no, I think that's extremely interesting. And it's, you know, everybody sort of has a sense of these things. But then when you read an article about it, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I've always thought these things, but I've never actually compartmentalized it and sort of thought in enough detail where I can actually put them in separate boxes. And so it's very helpful to sort of understand. And you, like you said, you know, everybody sees a little bit of them. You're like, oh, you know, I'm more of this, but less of that and, and so yeah. on and so forth. And even in today's day and age, I feel like, especially in places, you know, for example, in India, you know, they still get married for like, they call these arranged marriages between these big families, you know, oftentimes for, you know, business or growth or um, land. Uh, and so, I mean, it's still going on to this day and age um, in other cultures as well. So I think that's, uh, it's a very important sure. as well. And, well, and let's, you know, let's be frank, there are, there are relationships, you, you know, we, we hear about things in Hollywood or in the, in the business world where you have to wonder where there doesn't seem to be a romantic connection or people say, well, these people don't seem to fit together, but they're, it feels transactional for some reason. Now, we don't know, but you wonder when these two people don't seem to have a romantic relationship, but then you think, well, maybe there's something more going on there where it makes sense on another level. But uh, one thing uh, I know is like your, your point is, real good about how we don't realize this stuff in our own relationships until we start reading things like this. And I mean, I was married many, many, I mean, before I didn't know any, read anything about relationships really until I was concerned about getting divorced in my first marriage. And I read the, like the five love languages book. And that was like news to me. And a lot of it rang true. And I recommend that to people because it's helpful to step back and look at yourself, not just your spouse, but to look at yourself and your relationship and your contribution to the relationship um, from a third person point of view. And we don't normally do that. We live in our, in our own shoes and we don't look at ourselves in the mirror. And, and we don't like, I mean, it's uncomfortable to look at yourself in the mirror and have a realistic appraisal sometimes. Right. So it's, it, these articles make you think about that and it's useful and better to be familiar with this stuff before you have any trouble in your relationship. No. Yep. So yeah, you've got something cool um, in the doc. You were talking about this eight, what's this eight year mark? Nerd? Yeah. I think that's a great segue. So as uh, segueing to your, from your sort of um, last comment here, there's, um, I came across again on psychology today. I mean, these folks, you know, we give them a shout out. And they're weekend, cranking this stuff out. So they... they're, they're, <laughs> we'll have to get, you know, our favorite, uh, Mr. Bruce Lee, our Dr. Bruce Lee on here, whatever oh. the case might be. This is, this okay. one is not him either, but shout uh, out to Dr. Else. Lee, but yeah, Bruce quote, Lee, no relation yeah, to the great Kung Fu master. We, uh, we will actually, I am going to reach out to Dr. Lee because he's got some great articles and a great name. No, absolutely. So, uh, so this article, basically what it says is, or is titled why so many couples get divorced after eight years. So then I started thinking, I said, you know what, let me think about what I've been, you know, what I've came from my caseload and from my experience. And you know what, there is a many, many cases, right. In that seven to nine, 10 year mark, eight, eight years, really. And and you hear the infamous saying, right? You get a right. seven year itch. And so this article kind of goes in and it's very detailed. It'll be in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. But 
it says, according to the Census Bureau, the average length of first marriages for divorcing couples is 8.2 years. And, and then they say, you know, why? And then the article kind of questions, why is it eight and not 11 or 15 or five? And then they kind of go into the psychology of it. They say uh, adult development moves in roughly seven year blocks. And that's sort of wow. how our, our mind sort of functions. And we have these like inflection points as we sort of transition and grow. And then we hit a stop at that time and then we need something new or we need to sort of re-up something. So it's very interesting. Uh, you have to work through building a life. You're working towards something initially in your marriage. You might have a child. You might, you know, have started a new career, especially if it's your first marriage. You're, you're growing up, you know, you're not living with your parents anymore. You're not in college or actually an adult now. And, and so, and it's not just a roommate you have anymore, like you might've had in, in college or in other times. So you're sort of building this life with them. And then after a while you hit a crisis where it starts becoming mundane and <laughs> no longer works. And, uh, you know, you are basically starting to resent this other person or not even resent, but you just don't want to be there anymore. And then you start getting, you know, arguing, pulling yeah. away and, and then this happens. So I've obviously summarized that, you know, long lengthy article. Uh, from what I kind of read, but it's very interesting because it rings true and it sort of, again, highlights what you just sort of explained as the reasons for marriage, reasons for divorce and, and the types of marriage and what challenges parties or people face in their day-to-day -day lives as they sort of work through this. So instead of trying to medicate against cancer or some terminal illness where you're like, hey, I'm trying to use medicine now, I think it's important for people, uh, uh, you know, when they get the first whiff of it to try and be proactive, take a probiotic, you know, go try to figure it out. You know, if one of your legs in a chair is wobbly, you might want to get it, you know, fixed right away before it falls off and the other legs start falling off. And now you're trying to balance the chair yep. on three legs and then the whole thing collapses. So try to get ahead of it. And, you know, like we always say, it's your motto, right? A good marriage is better than a good divorce. There's no instruction manual for marriage, but actually there is if you go out and read all this stuff. But the thing is, we, nobody tells us our parents don't really teach us about what a good marriage is. A lot of them probably don't know themselves, even if they're successful in their marriage, they might not know why they're successful. They just do certain things that have made it successful. Um, we're not taught in school. We're not taught anywhere. What makes a great marriage and, or even what makes a good one or conflict resolution or any of that. You might have seen your parents resolve conflicts. Um, you know, my parents never fought in front of my sister and I. And that's good in that we didn't see any scary fights between them at all, ever. And they had disagreements in front of us, but they were more of the mild variety, like, are we going to dinner at this place or that place? <laughs> you know, it was never, never anything major. Um, the downside is you don't see conflict resolution happen. So, you, you know, you just think your parents' marriage is awesome and, and they're still married now. Shout out to my mom and dad. And, uh, and, and they're blessed and they've done it right for all these years, 55 years married. And it's phenomenal. They've got the mojo. I know they communicate really well, obviously. That I do know. They're good communicators. And they look out for each other. Those things that we, you know, my sister and I could tell, obviously, from observing them. And they care about each other.
which are fundamental things. But conflict resolution, other things that are behind closed doors don't know about that. So we're not taught any of that stuff. So we don't know those skills. So we get into our marriage and we have, we're optimists. You know, people on their wedding day, they say, they don't say, I can't wait till the day I get divorced. Everybody in their wedding day says, I am so excited to get married. This is the greatest thing ever. They get married and then they run into some problems and they don't really know what to do or, or they just do things they've done before that may or may not be good or useful or they don't say anything. They stuff it inside any number of problems. And so what the only, the best thing we can say is like Rahul is saying is address it early, get those things out there in the open and, and engage a professional, read up on this stuff and educate yourself. And my second book is all about this because I want to educate people before they get in trouble. We want to help people make the right decision, whether it is to get divorced or to stay married because a good marriage is better than a good divorce. And there, there are plenty of divorces out there. We don't mean, need more of them. So if you can figure out what is wrong and fix it, then more power to you. And, and that's a good thing for you and your kids, obviously. So that's one thing we hope to help with on this show is, is unlocking some of the relationship stuff and, and not just talk about divorce because some of that stuff is just rote. Like once you're there, yeah, we'll talk about those things and we'll give tips and advice. And that's what my book is about now. I just want this done. And the name of the podcast is getting it over with better, getting, getting divorced better. But the book I'm working on next is how do we either, how do you make the decision intelligently and maybe it's salvageable and maybe it's you, not just your spouse and, and evaluating that fairly. But, um, you know, that's, that's important. So if we can help people evaluate that, then we're doing a good service. And that's why we talk about all these things. And, and there's some of it, I mean, it's, it's all interesting too. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other practical point of view, I think is a practical consideration is nobody advertises a good marriage, right? You right. don't hear about it. It's, you know, you're hearing all the ball, all the Hollywood stuff where they say, Oh, so and so are still happily. Yeah, that doesn't make the, that. Right. It's just, that doesn't make the news. Yeah. Nobody. Nobody yeah, cares right. about the couple that's been married. I mean, you occasionally hear so-and-so has been married mm-hmm. 75 years and they show some, an elderly cute couple that it's their anniversary and everybody says, Hey, that's awesome. But nobody bothers to go ask them, yep. Hey, what's the secret? And, and, and exactly. actually on YouTube and stuff, there are places where people are interviewing some couples with very long-term marriages and what they have to say is pretty cool. It's oh, pretty cool. interesting. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, but yes, you're right. In pop culture, it gets no traction. It, that's like, it's not glamorous for no, Instagram, it's, right? That's not fun. It's not, it's you not. know, we don't, people don't like to watch that stuff. They, they watch the guy who's got six, you know, six girls on the boat or 20 girls on his yacht or something like that. That's the, that's yeah, what gets exactly. the press. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I mentioned, I was thinking this reminded me of the, there was an old Marilyn Monroe film called the seven year itch, which when you mentioned this article made me think about that. And I, and I was also oh, sure. thinking, about the seven year thing, I was thinking about, you say the dog years, it's like seven human years was one thing, right? The other thing I thought was interesting was at 14, we can, it's like when you hit puberty at age 14, well, it's two seven year blocks. And, and when you're 21, you you know, we kind of consider you an adult quote unquote, and that's a seven year block. It's kind of interesting. I I never thought of it that way. That is really interesting. So, um, next we want to talk about this one thing I came across which was this 
ties into marriage and divorce. And it's Love in the Age of Entitlement, title of an article by uh, another psychologist. Again, Psychology Today coming at you with fresh content on the daily. Um, and it talks about the word entitlement means having a feeling of a right to something. And this person talks about how in relationships, especially in marriage, we, and in our culture today, we have an expanding sense of entitlement that things that we once thought were, were things that we, uh, wanted to have became things that we had rights to have or things that we would earn like privileges became transitioned in our cultural mindset to become rights. So this person says in that, and there's a big, the self-help industry we know is huge and it has spun up to say, and this person says virtually all, this is a psychologist saying virtually all my clients these days feel entitled to happiness not merely the pursuit of it. You know, my dad always told me, you know, you don't have a right to, you don't have an entitlement to happiness. You have a right to pursue it. You have a freedom to pursue it. You have a freedom to work for it. You don't get it handed to you. Well, that's the same thing in our relationships. So I think people, and what he's saying is on these self-help blogs and articles, talks about victim identity and victim mindset and uh, the problem is displays of entitlement tend to create standoffs. I'm offended by what you think, feel, say, and do. I'm offended that you're offended, right? And, and so we, you get into this box, and he has this great line. He calls it the disastrous conflation or mix of desires, needs, and rights. The steady expansion of entitlement and narcissism since the late 1970s. And, and in a later show, we're going to talk about how narcissism is over, over-labeled, overused big time in the divorce world. Well, that'll be a topic for another show. And we're not knocking true nar- people that were dealing with real narcissist, borderline personality. It's real. We know it's real. But that label's been thrown around so loosely now that it's almost meaningless for, uh, you know, everybody's a narcissist now. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but we'll talk about it later. This, this doctor says steady expansion of entitlement narcissism, narcissism since the late 70s is due in no small part to the popular conflation of desires, emotional needs, and rights. I think this is true. If I want it, I need it. If I need it, I have a right to have it. And, do, and so many people do think this way. One of the most harmful concepts of pop psychology is approaching love in terms of getting your needs met meaning you're entitled to have your needs met. It's okay to want to have your needs met and to need to have your needs met, but nobody owes it to you. And he says, a perceived emotional need is a preference or desire that you've decided must be gratified to maintain equilibrium. That is, you can't be well or feel whole without it. You know, you're not right unless you're getting fed the attention, right? Or affection. The perception of need begins with a rise in emotional intensity You feel strongly about being with someone or having that person behave the way you want them to behave. Then eventually you feel like you need it. It's kind of like a drug. And then when you don't get it, you get angry and you feel like they owe it to you. And they talk about entitlement strips relationships of one of their most sublime emotional experiences, appreciation. We appreciate getting what we desire 
not what we need. If we need it, we feel like we're just owed it. You don't appreciate that. Right. Um, people appreciate getting something they desire. So when he says this, if you mix this all together, you've got a big problem coming because then yeah. you fold this together and uh, you get into this entitlement reciprocity where if both of you are thinking this way, you're headed for a crash because it's, if each of, each of you demand this from each other and nobody's appreciative, well, you're just going to be banging against each other and go in a death spiral and your marriage is doomed. So he's, he just talks about, you know, understanding this saying rights are limited by responsibility, but the sense of entitlement and relationships must be tempered by the principle of emotional reciprocity. That is, we're likely to get back what we put out. And there's a song by the New Radicals that I love called You Only Get What You Give. And I quote it in the beginning of my new book because you get oh, what you cool. give is exactly what this guy's talking about and what we've talked about. What I've talked about before is you can't expect a one-way street in a relationship. It's everybody's in it for there is needs to be reciprocity and you can't demand the affection and everything you, you can only put in the inputs. You can't demand the output or the return. And all you can do is yep. fix your side of it and keep giving. And hopefully you'll get, it doesn't mean you can't talk about it. You can't raise concerns, but acting entitled to it is a sure way to be a buzzkill and make the other person feel like they're unappreciated, then you lose respect and you go in that downward spiral that Dr. Gottman talks about in his books. And we'll talk about John Gottman more later in another show, but uh, he's a genius. But he talks about when you lose that mutual respect, you're in big trouble. So, oh, yeah. Big trouble. So that was, I thought that was cool. Do you have any, you have any thoughts that about that? Cool. No, I think this, again, goes back to the same sort of um, thing we're talking about. It's... These are all sort of concepts that we sort of innately maybe feel, but when you see it in writing, it really, really helps everybody sort of say, okay, well, this is what it is. So once you see it in writing, it's sort of like saying, you know, you have a to-do list in your mind and you have all this swirling around. You're like, man, I have a really busy day today. I don't know when I'm going to get the time to do all this. So then you put it down in a, in a, in a checklist and you start crossing it off. You're like, man, I'm making some great headway here. And I'm almost done. So it's just sort of a good way to organize what everyone probably feels to some capacity in some degree. And then that organization then allows us to go ahead and, you know, work towards it or identify and diagnose these problems. So then we can either stop being, you know, less appreciative and, you know, start trying to do or hold our weight. Yeah, so if speak. we've, if we've helped somebody by giving them a clue when they're, when something happens in the relationship and now you can put a label to it, and you can say, oh, wait, this is, I remember there was some discussion about this. Then you can identify, maybe you can at least better identify the problem rather than most people kind of walk around blindly and there, and there's a, they just know their marriage isn't good and they know things are not, they're not happy or they know their spouse isn't happy and they're not sure why. And their spouse might not be sure why. And you might ask them and they, they can't put words to it. They're just not feeling right yep. about it. And so the reason we like to talk about these things, first of all, it's sort of, it's interesting, but it, it helps you understand the mechanics behind divorces, but also healthy relationships. So that's why. So then um, 
turning to, we always want to talk about something you might call practical advice for divorce itself in every show. And we've, we've learned we want to do that. We think we want to do that in every show. And this time for kind of our divorce talk today, Rahul and I want to discuss how to move a stalled divorce forward. This is a common complaint. And uh, so we're changing gears here a little bit to some practical advice. And again, one of our goals on this show is to give you stuff that's not just easy to find on Google, to give you things that's tied in with our insights and our experience, both in life and in our work, to give you something more than you can just Google or anything. Because why listen to us, a couple guys on the on a random podcast, if we're not adding some value for you? That, so we want to, you might not love everything in every show, that's fine, but there are pieces of this that hopefully are useful to you or whatever. So in each show, we want to talk about something more nuts and bolts, but still stuff that's not just like right on Google that you can find anywhere. So how do you move a stalled case ahead? This is a common problem in divorces and it's, it's twofold. One is a perception problem. And that is, uh, it may seem like your divorce is not moving, but it may be moving. And the other is, diagnosing what the problem really is and then dealing with it. So I guess it's sort of three things to discuss. So the number one thing is, is your case really stalled? Some of this depends on your jurisdiction. So what, you know, what county are you in? What state are you in country? And uh, how long does it normally take for a divorce to get resolved where you're located? And in one county, we work in Cook County, Chicago, cases can go three to five years if they go all the way to trial. In DuPage County, one of the other counties we serve, cases go one to one and a half years through trial, maybe. And so, and because courts are overloaded in Cook County and they're just a lot busier. So uh, that matters. But also the parties involved, the lawyers involved, the facts, like how complex is the case, all these factors determine the length of a case. Can the people get along? Are they trying to negotiate, et cetera? But so, first step is diagnosing. Is it really a problem? And one thing I want to mention is what I call the airplane analogy. And the airplane analogy is when you take off in an airplane, it's really dramatic and you see the, the plane speed up and you hear the engines throttle up and it's very exciting. The ground drops away. It's very dramatic start. And so you feel the speed and it moves quickly. It's the same with the divorce. There's a takeoff and then there's a cruising and a landing. The landing is like trial or settlement or whatever in a divorce case. And that part is exciting because a lot of things are going on. You're talking to the lawyer a lot. You're, you're dealing with a lot of documents. There's a lot of information going back and forth. And a lot of things are happening rather quickly. Well, in the middle of a divorce case, just like in the middle of an airplane flight, you're at cruising altitude. You're above the clouds. You don't perceive movement. <laughs> you don't, I mean, you see the clouds sort of slowly moving by. And as far as you know, the plane could be just circling, theoretically, just land back where you started and you really wouldn't know the difference. It was like a really slow, wide turn. You'd have no idea. And the same things in a divorce case. In the middle, there's a lot of waiting. There's documents being exchanged. The lawyers are talking about stuff, trying to figure out things in the case. Sometimes the court's just delayed and you're sitting there waiting. So part of the important thing is understanding, talking to the pilot, who's a divorce lawyer, to find out what is going on. And if your divorce lawyer is not communicating with you, you want to get them on the phone or meet them in person and understand what stage is my case in? What's the next thing you're going to do? And when is that? And is there any holdup? And how long is that going to take? And what's the source of the holdup? 
So those are questions to ask your lawyer if your case seems like it's stuck. And it's worth having a frank conversation to find out what's going on. So first I want to say, okay, first diagnose, is it just that you're, it may just be normal. You might just be waiting for a subpoena response or for a document to be drafted and the wait is ordinary and nothing unusual. And that's just the way it is. If that's the case, there's nothing to worry about. And if your lawyer's communicating with you, doing a good job of that, you probably know that and you're okay. But if you're not sure and you don't get a good answer, or you're just waiting and the case is stalled out, or more importantly, you find out it's not your lawyer. So check with your lawyer to find out and make sure they're moving the case along as they should be. Uh, if they're not doing what they should be doing, and we'll talk about a couple steps here. And so in the middle of a case, you have discovery, which is gathering all the facts. So sending out interrogatories or a list of written questions, sending out a request to produce, which is a request for documents, and potentially sending out subpoenas, which are court orders requesting third parties produce documents like a bank or an employer uh, to gather records about the person or subpoenas for depositions to take sworn testimony under oath from people. That's another way. So is your lawyer doing those things that are necessary to gather all the information? If they've gathered that information and now you're ready to talk about settlement, there are a couple of things we'll talk about as ways to move the case forward. Number one is get that discovery done and do get that all finished so that you can talk Turkey because you don't know what your case is about, or your lawyer certainly doesn't until they gather that information. And the other lawyer might be waiting on you or your lawyer to give them stuff about you so they understand the case. And I call that getting the, we, we call that getting a unified data set. So once we're agreed on the data, then we can start talking Turkey. If we disagree on the numbers, we're gonna have a hard time agreeing on anything. But once we agree that the balance of the 401k is this, that the weight, the income is X, et cetera, once we understand those things, we can start negotiating and working out a deal. Now, some things we may never, not agree on. We might not agree on somebody's income and might have to have a court resolve that either at a pretrial conference or by a hearing. Somebody might have a wildly variable income and they're not, you're not agreeing on that, what that income should be for support purposes, or um, you have a situation where person is out of work or they intentionally quit a job and we, we're trying to deal with that, an imputed income issue. So uh, when you have to push that case forward, there are a couple things I always think of. One is, is the discovery done? Have you gotten all that done? If you're waiting on stuff from the other side, have you sent subpoenas to the third parties to do an end run around them? Why wait for the bank statements when you can go right to Chase and get all the bank statements from the horse's mouth. So that's an issue too. Is your lawyer just sitting there waiting for responses when the other side hasn't been cooperative? And when you could send out subpoenas for without spending much money. Uh, the next thing is, you know, so let's assume all that discovery is done. Have you sent out a settlement offer? And are, are you asking for a response on that? But moreover, then in Illinois at least, scheduling the pretrial conference because that's key to get a trial date in our state. A trial date is the thing that's gonna make everything get done. Otherwise, nobody. there's usually one party out of two that aren't motivated to hurry up for one reason or another. Sometimes both people are motivated to hurry or get it done. 
But a lot of times there's one person where time is on their side and they don't really care. They don't, they don't want the divorce. Uh, they're not the, maybe they're not the financial engine and they figure every day that goes by in, in our state, every dollar that comes into the marriage during the divorce case is 50% theirs, more or less. It's not true in community property states, but in many states it is. So they're not in a big hurry. They only see financial downside to getting divorced. So people will say, oh, they're dragging their feet. Well, either intentionally or unintentionally, sure. It might be to their advantage to wait, or they're certainly not in a hurry, even if they aren't intentionally dragging their feet. So what do you have to do? Advance the ball, get all that information together, schedule the pretrial conference so that you can get the court's recommendations on settlement and get the pretrial, I'm sorry, the trial date scheduled. Because until that trial date's scheduled, guess what? Nobody's gonna pay attention to the case. And, and Rahul, I'm gonna ask you about your, any additional thoughts you have on this, because I'm interested in, in cases where you've seen this stuff, um, especially because you've done lots and lots of downtown Cook County work where it take, the cases take a long time. The other, uh, the other okay. situation is that trial date's very motivational because people finally have to wake up and get the case resolved, or the judge is gonna resolve it for them. And nobody loves trials. Lawyers like trials. Even lawyers don't really like trials because they get in the way of everything else. But um, they, the trial prep, I always say the trial prep sucks. Yeah, trials, trials, are, uh, trials are kind of fun. Trial preparation is terrible. You have to spend days and days and, and you, you know, you're now other clients aren't thrilled because you're not getting their cases worked on because you can't do everything. If you're in a small practice, there's no way to juggle all that stuff. So you've got to scramble to get all that trial stuff put together. So it's, it's very stressful for the lawyer, for the lawyer's team, and for the client especially. So um, it's better to settle. You know, it's a, it's kind of like they say, like good settlement's better than a good trial. Is you're, you're really putting your, your fate in the hands of the court who doesn't know your situation, is looking at the world in your marriage through a straw. You know, they're looking at limited amount of evidence the rules require them to see. They don't know everything. They can't give you a customized solution like we can in a settled case. So. The last thing is depositions. Uh, they're used fairly sparingly in divorce cases because a lot of times the documents prove much of these cases. Um, it's not like an auto accident case where you need that eyewitness testimony about what happened at the scene of the accident. You need the testimony of the person who got injured to find out about, about how they feel and their medical condition and how they've recovered and all that. Unless you have a custody dispute where it is all personal testimony, um, in a financial case, there's so much that's proved in the documents, but that doesn't mean a deposition isn't valuable. A deposition can be a very strategic move to commit the person to their testimony, the, the other party, your soon-to-be ex, to what they have to say under oath. You find out their story, and if there's any curveballs you didn't know about, you'll hear about them at the deposition. And if they change their story at the trial, now you can impeach them or your lawyer can use the stuff in the sworn statement to show that they're not saying the same thing that they said at the deposition. So you nail them down in their testimony. You can see the demeanor of them as a witness. So you can see, do they seem believable? Does it seem like they're kind of mousy or they're not a good witness? Will the judge believe what they say? So you can assess that. And by getting that story, you can help work your strategy up for trial or for settlement and find out if you think their case is any good or not. But the thing I wanted to say about pushing cases forward and driving a case ahead is depositions in divorce cases tend to drive settlements because 
for the first time, the foot dragger, whether it's the lawyer or the client, and sometimes the lawyer is overloaded on the other side, or maybe your own lawyer is overloaded. And that's one thing you need to find out if they're not returning your calls. And if your own lawyer is not returning your calls and your emails, they're probably overloaded. And that's not a good sign. And you have a right to demand their attention or they pay attention to you and explain what's going on. Also, if you're not getting monthly billing, that's a huge red flag. Be worried about that. But what I wanted to mention was with depositions for uh, settling cases, I can't tell you how many times we've noticed up a deposition and they show up with all their stuff. They bring their file and everything. The client comes in, lawyer comes in. The lawyer says, hey, Rafe, can I talk to you for a minute? You <laughs> walk in the other conference room or your office. Sure, what's up? Yeah, um, can we talk about settlement and like, let's keep the court reporter in the hallway for a while and see if we can maybe work something out here. You know, I don't know that we need the deposition. Oh, interesting. Because now we've made them prepare for the deposition. They finally had to look at the data set. Like maybe they just haven't even looked at the information. So now the lawyer had to look at the stuff. The client had to look at the stuff and nobody likes testifying under oath. So the other party's like, geez, I don't want to testify under oath. And now some pressure is on for the first time and a clock was ticking. So it tends to drive, I've seen cases settle at depositions where they sit down and they spend a couple hours and hash it out because they're finally all face to face at the table, which is why I prefer ADR anyway, alternative dispute resolution and mediation collaboration, because we sit down and start negotiating, just get the act of getting face to face, whether it's on video or in person works miracles. So Rahul, I wanted you to talk about your experience with this and what you've seen and any tri tips, tricks you have for pushing a case forward or poking the other lawyer or whatever you, know, whatever you think that you found useful. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you said is completely accurate, especially uh, when it comes to sort of techniques on pushing a case. Sometimes it's just not possible, right? So you'll get a call from a client, hey, you know, so-and-so, my buddy got divorced and it only took him three months. <laughs> I'm in year two here. What's going on? Well, if you can't help me, you know, right. I'll find somebody else. And, and you know, and oftentimes uh, the reality of the situation is uh, maybe that's not, they're not telling the truth or the friend, you know, sort of has, you know, in hindsight, everything is great. Right. So he, he has a very cherry blossom view of the way his divorce was or our divorce was in hindsight, but, some court dates, for example, because courts are so overworked and overburdened, especially in Cook County, you go in for a court date and you can't get another court date for three more months. So regardless of what happens, it's at least going to be three more months out. Now, the, the, the trick is, how can you use these three months? Can you do something on your end to advance the course or the progress in these three months? And that's sort of what I usually talk to clients about is, look, Judge, you and 4,000 other cases that the judge has in front of him or her have the same dilemma. You're getting a date yeah. in three months. So what do we do in these three months? Like you said, can you send us subpoenas or do you have to wait for subpoena responses? Are you looking to negotiate a settlement? You can do a deposition in those three months. Or instead of coming back just for another quick check-in with the court, maybe in three months, you say, hey, we'll have all this done. Give us a pretrial three months from now. So that way you know that in six months, you can tell the client, hey, you know, three months nothing may happen but in six months i can uh you know i can assure you that you'll be near the finish line if not already done and so especially something like a pretrial is very very uh a good tool and that's often what i do in cases where there's just you're sort of at an impasse where there's nothing's happening you basically tell the courts hey you know what the judge tells the parties 
This is what I That's think what, will happen. Can you explain for yeah, everybody what a pretrial conference is? Because I think we throw that term around yeah. in, in more than one of our shows. We throw it around. And we probably should walk back absolutely. and explain it. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to summarize what a pretrial is, so there's a few different types of court dates, at least in Illinois. We, only, we can only speak on Illinois because we're Chicagoland attorneys. So your jurisdiction, if you're listening outside of Illinois, may be different. And even in Illinois, some courts call pretrial something else. So uh, I'm talking about just the Chicago and Cook County and Collar County region here. So a pretrial is an opportunity for the attorneys to go talk to the judge in chambers about the substance of the case. What they'll tell the court is, this is what our position is, uh, and this is what and we're the for. So a couple of points, right? The clients aren't there, right? Yep. Yep, yep, yeah, I was okay. get to that. yep, the clients are not going to be there. Yep. And before that, you submit a memo to the court outlining and detailing what the issues are, uh, including, you know, biographical data about the parties, how old they are, what their occupation, income. You give a court the entire background and you list all the issues in the divorce. You know, every divorce has three buckets of issues, right? You have financial issues, uh, you have support related issues, and you have, you know, possibly custody issues. So, you say, you know, some people might not have kids, so no custody issues. So you have support and asset and liability issues. So you kind of detail these and what your client's position is based on the facts of the case. So you send this to the judge in advance. Judge reads it, is ready for the pretrial. Right. So now you show up to court, and at that time, the the court's going to say, okay, so you're the petitioner. Go ahead, tell me what your client's position is. And you kind of, you know, recite what your position is. And you'll say, look, you know, a pretrial is a way of cutting to the chase. You know, if you go to a trial, it, you know, again, really, really fast. We'll talk about this in much more detail at another time. But a trial is essentially where you put out, put forth evidence and you prove a claim. And you say this is, you know, based on oral testimony, documents, you know, experts, whatever the case might be. And you show in a court what something is. Here in a pretrial, you tell the court hey, my evidence will show that this is yep. what has happened. So the judge can then, at the end of a pretrial, after listening to both sides, will say, okay, well, if you can actually establish what you're telling me you can establish, this is probably what I'm going to do. And oftentimes, you know, uh, courts will take the Solomon's baby approach and split things down the middle. You know, they might do different things. But they'll really fashion an equitable sort of, resolution where neither side will get everything they want typically from my experience one side might get more than what they were asking for or, or more than a 50 50 split you know however right. the case might be but ultimately you bring this to your client and you tell them hey you know i know our next court date's two months away but this is what you know the court said in our pre-trial so if you want to get this done we can get you divorced before the next two months or you can wait and you can get a trial date and then maybe get that case resolved at that time so it's really a way for us to, I call cutting to the chase and sort of the court just opining on it because we can sit with a mediator and we can negotiate. And, but if you hit that, but if you hit that point where you no longer can pass, if you reach that impasse, then who's going, going to be sort of the tiebreaker? And really the only person that's a tiebreaker is the person wearing right. the robes and with the gavel. So if you hear from them that, hey, this is what's going to happen. Do you want to really spend all this extra money trying to maybe prove otherwise? Now, you might disagree with the court's recommendation because you think the judge got something wrong right. or you missed it. So, I mean, that's all other nuanced items. But really, uh, for the most part, it works. And then that helps you craft a proposed settlement, right? You don't have to take everything. So you'll say, hey, I agree with all this. 
but you know, you need to give us this and we'll sign right now. And the other side also knows they also have the same financial considerations yep. that you have. So I think that's a really good way to sort of advance our agenda given this, but I mean, depositions, uh, pre-trial conferences, these are all just the best ways to sort of move a case. Yeah. Forward. And it's, it's rare when, like you said, usually you have a pretty high degree of confidence in what the court is saying is generally the way the outcome of the case is going to be. And in the majority of cases, not, it's not a wrong answer, meaning there's a range of realistic outcomes. We talk about this in the book. Um, every case has a range of realistic outcomes that are within the law and within the facts. It's not usually one answer. There's usually a reasonable range of answers that if any one of those is reached by the court, you couldn't overturn it on appeal. You couldn't go to an appellate court and have that court say, no, we're going to throw out that decision. And there's a, there are rare cases where the court is wrong on the law and you might be able to overturn a court's decision on appeal. That's, that's uncommon. It's very rare. Also appeals are expensive. Yeah. Hold my breath. It, it's an, it's a big outlier. So in the majority of it's vast majority of cases, like you said, when the court gives you a pretrial recommendation, you can usually bank on it. And the, and the thing I always tell clients is unless some surprise evidence comes out of left field or the judge just doesn't believe somebody like certain evidence is just not credible, then what the judge is saying is the likely outcome is the likely outcome and you should bank on it and you should sign this. If the agreement, you know, settlement agreement proposed is within a reasonable range of that number or that outcome, then you should jump on it. And that's all that, that whole cost benefit analysis, you know, what's the reasonable range of outcomes? What is the cost to get there? And is the settlement on the table in that range? And if you're saving something off of the, the potential trial result plus the cost to get there, then you're doing well. So yeah, well, yep. so that uh, that hope that helps. That's what we wanted to talk about in terms of how to move your case forward if you feel like you're stuck. Uh, thanks for following. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please leave comments if you're on YouTube and uh, like, share, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends. We hope you like it. I'm Rafe Palmer. That's Rahul Iyer. That's the pod.